All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Queers to Cinema. I am James Addo. I will be leading the conversation this week for the first time. Uh, I am the head of the Queer Film Institute, which produces Wicked Queer, the Boston LGBTQ Plus Film Festival. Uh, and I teach film at MIT and Leslie College of Art and Design. Uh, and I'm joined by a group of our usual regulars here to discuss this week's topic, which is genre and queer takes on genre and queer specific genres. So we have quite a lot to sort of dig into and I'll uh, throw it to the team to sort of introduce themselves. Um, Sam, do you want to jump in first? Sure. Um, hi, my name is Sam Berliner. I use he, they pronouns. Um, I'm a filmmaker and I ran Translations, the Seattle Transgender Film Festival for seven years and currently am a programmer for Frameline, the LGBTQ plus film festival in San Francisco. Um, Jared, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Jared. I am uh, use he, him pronouns. I am on the board of the Queer Film Institute with James. Uh, I'm a queer filmmaker and queer at large. Um, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Winter with the Film Collaborative. Um, I am really excited about this topic today because this has become my favorite my favorite take on queer cinema and uh, crossing over into the world of genre genre cinema. So I'm just very excited. And so if I chatter a lot today, apologies in advance. It's okay. We edit these. <laughs> How dare you be enthusiastic? <laughs> That's you great because mind, I just want to mention because we'd be remiss in not doing so that I just got back from the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, Sundance Film Festival, of course, is always extremely queer inclusive. Um, it is where many of the great queer classics of the canon have been introduced. It's always lots of queer events. It's a super queer friendly environment. Um, and there was the usual mix of queer cinema this year. Maybe not quite as much, but uh, healthy representation for sure. I just want to mention one film. Do you guys mind if I just give you one film that was my highlight of Sundance? Yeah, go, oh, go please right do. So there is a film by a queer filmmaker named Sebastian Silva. I don't know if you're familiar with Sebastian Silva. This is the, he is, I believe, originally from Chile, but um, he's been in New York for many years. Um, <clears throat> and this film is called, this was his eighth film at Sundance. Unbelievable, because he's like a young guy. And the film is called Rotting in the Sun. And uh, basically, it's about him kind of like New York is too expensive now. So he's gone to Mexico City. And it's about a queer filmmaker named Sebastian Silva, played by Sebastian Silva. And the entire, it starts out with him uh, cruising the internet looking for painless ways to kill himself. So he's focused on dog poison, phenobarbital. And um, he's depressed and he's decided that the only thing that's worse than being a queer filmmaker is being a poor queer filmmaker. So he's decided to kill himself. Um, but uh, his manager or friend convinces him to go to a nude beach in Mexico to try to shake it off. And he's constantly doing ketamine through the whole thing. He's really depressed and suicidal, at which point he meets a social influencer named Jordan Firstman, 
who is a famous social influencer and he's played by Jordan Firstman and um, madness ensues. And it was really in this, it was nihilistic, explicitly sexual, lots and lots of unsimulated gay sex, nasty, uh, beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely uh, for me, a John Waters meets Pedro Almodovar film. And uh, I don't know who the heck could pick it up because there is a lot of, as I said, unsimulated gay sex and many, many, many penises. Um, and <laughs> though on some level, that is no longer shocking to people. If you think about it, the streaming environment we're in is now more like you know restrictive than ever before so you can't you could sure you can play it in art house theaters but no one goes to those <laughs> and there's no dvd so without streaming through the corporate system i just can't really imagine who can pick it up um so i'm i mean personally i'm gonna chase it to try to see if i can help it bring to festivals and all of your festivals but I don't have any idea whether I'll get it or not, but I would say everybody should look for it in the festival environment because this is one of those things that's so good, absolutely as good as an Almodovar film, not as stylized, but more contemporary. Um, and uh, I just really don't know how it'll come to you <laughs> other than the festival circuit. So look for it, people. I remember the one review I read said that the, that the person who wrote the review um, stopped counting at 29 penises. He's like, I'm pretty sure there were more, but at that point I stopped counting. <laughs> yes, many of them are indeed erect and mouths and other holes. So not just for comic effects, they are not there just, <laughs> they, are, they are doing what they do. <laughs> All right. On that note, <laughs> is, is, no one, is no one distributing Theo and Hugo? They, I have to imagine that film would have the same problem. Do they not so have Theo a and Hugo went to Wolf? Um, that was many years ago now, you know. And what's weird is, and so I, I worked on that though. But what we forget—it's very hard for me to conceive. But we forget, like you can't put it on Apple. You cannot put it on Netflix. You cannot put it on. Amazon. So I don't understand where you even put these films. That right. was not as true, even in Theo and Hugo days, because there was definitely still DVD. Yeah. Right. Now I don't I don't know what you do with these, but so put it on Pornhub, I guess. <laughs> Criterion. Well, what a segue from one genre to the next, James. <laughs> I was going to say, do we dig in and be like, is, is the penis film the, a sub-genre of the, the queer film? So to be clear, this very quickly transitions into a murder mystery. I would say a murder mystery in, in reverse, because we know what happened, but the characters are trying to figure it out. So it spends most of the time as a reverse thriller, and it is genre in that way. All the trappings of a thriller murder mystery are happening except that we know what happened the characters oh. are trying to figure it out that makes sense yeah 
So I did feel like it was um, a genre film, but I don't think that means like it'll play at Fantastic Fest or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's use that as the, the jumping off point. You know, I think what kind of got me into this idea, um, and yes, I don't know how you're going to edit Vera out. Uh, Jared, Never but, do. Uh, She's just our mascot. <laughs> Uh, she had just woken up from her nap, so she was making an appearance in this episode. Um, so one of the things I like to sort of focus on when I in my classes is is to get students to think about genre and sort of what genre is and and what it does for us as not just I mean they're filmmakers, so it's you know what does it mean for filmmakers, but what does it mean for film goers or film theorists or film critics and. Um, you know, the whole idea of genres comes out of 19th century, 18th century literature. And so quickly it's absorbed into cinema early on 19, in, you know, in the 1890s, early um, 1900s. I think the first horror film is like 1903. Uh, the first, you know, Edison's Frankenstein comes out in 1903. So genre begins right away. And, and, and I think it sticks with us, I think. And part of my kind of idea for this episode was to think about how, you know, what does it mean for queer audiences to to take a genre or to queer a genre? Right, genres come at us with predetermined paths. We you know we we go to a horror film; it, it's a shortcut. We know when we say I'm going to go see a horror film, we know exactly what we're going to get, depending on its various sort of subgenres. Um, or you know, a western, we know exactly where we get. So these these forms come predetermined, and you have expectations. Um, the film should do certain things to fulfill its genre nature. Um, and we don't see this until like the 1970s when, you know, uh, Altman and a few other 70s filmmakers begin to adjust and redo genre cl of classical Hollywood cinema. Um, Altman with, you know, neo-noir. Um, and we begin to see queer filmmakers or, or, you know, straight filmmakers making kind of queer genre films. Uh, the first thing I sort of remember as a young queer person was The Hunger. Uh, which was probably the first sort of queer vampire or explicitly queer vampire uh, film. And that was, uh, oh gosh, it's 1983, uh, of course, directed by a straight man, Tony Scott, um, and, and the eroticization of lesbian sex um, within sort of this vampire motif. So genre's always sort of been there. And I wanted to throw this question out to everyone to sort of, um, you know, when you think about a genre and then you think about a queer version of that genre, you know, what sort of jumps out at you? Again, like my example was The Hunger, but I want to see what you guys are thinking. Uh, and I'll throw it to, only because I'm going to go, I'm going to keep going clockwise for some reason. And Sam, you're <laughs> you're, you're the next box in Hollywood, in this non-Hollywood square. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, the way that I interpreted this uh, topic is um, queering the lens. And I like to say transing the lens. That's not a word. I make trans into a verb all the time. Um, and so the way I thought about it was through a couple different things. Uh, one, through things we've talked about, but I'll go into a little more detail with um, Chase Joint and reinventing the documentary genre, um, really subverting that gaze a lot. So I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, I think it's interesting to talk about Disclosure, the Sam Fader documentary, because that is examining LGBTQ plus characters in mainstream media, but through a trans lens. So it's it's still transing the lens just like twice in the same movie. Um, I also think there's something to be said for uh, trans people playing trans roles. I think that 
also is a way of queering the lens or transing it in the same way that having more trans directors um, and writers and involving people with those experiences in the production process. I think all of that lends to lends itself to um, more authenticity and more nuance um, as as any genre would be when the topic, when the main topic is, when the main topic is the lived experience of the people who are making it. Um, also, I think another idea of queering the lens um, is combining genres. And so I think Chase Joint does that, of course, because there's some narrative aspects to his documentaries. But I also would say that uh, Jules Roskam is doing that in his up and coming film called Desire Lines um, about transmasculine uh, attraction to cis gay men. And so he has interviews. And at the same time, there's this whole storyline that he's developing. It's still in production that he's developing of a trans guy who meets a cis guy at a bathhouse and kind of plays out some of the stories that the people who are interviewed talk about. And I think that's a really cool mixture as well. Um, another idea that I was thinking about, cause this really, it, it sounds like Jeffrey had a lot of ideas and I was like, I don't know if I have ideas. I have to really pull this apart. So here's another totally different one, which is I was thinking about the watermelon woman. So not a trans thing. So Cheryl Dunye, 1997. Um, I was thinking about how maybe in, it's probably in more ways than this, but my initial thoughts were she does this direct address to the camera thing and breaks the fourth wall. I think that's kind of queering a genre um, of a narrative genre. And at the same time, what she's doing like at a, in a, bigger picture for the film is uh, creating this character of the watermelon woman to make it so that she's making the point that there are not African-American lesbians portrayed that she had seen at that time. Um, and I just think that's a really cool way of doing it. Um, I don't want to explain the whole thing, but like, that's a cool one if, if people haven't seen it or are listening. And then the very last thing I'll say, and then I'll totally come back later because I just talk too much. Um, I think it's also queering the genre of having queer and trans people characters not die and not be sad. I think actually having happy stories, happy endings, like hooray, they get to be happy. I actually think that's also a form of queering the genre given what it had been prior where it was always, oh, well, if you're the queer person in the movie, you're gonna die and you're gonna be sad. Um, so things like, but I'm a cheerleader and Romeos are happy for me. So I will stop, but happy to go into more detail later. No, that was a super great direction because I feel like um, part of the, one of the ideas I was thinking to unpack here is that the idea of like 
querying itself is a, is its own genre and then and then in your own sort of nod to the historical too is like you know his, we i think about queer noir and of course the most famous one is the Maltese falcon with you know a super sissy character played by peter laurie you know and it just it's like these are stock kind of queer characters of course they're terrible and of course they're villains and of course they have to die and that, that is sort of a, a trope that continues on and on and of course especially trans people consistently being identified as aberrant and you know dangerous and killers so you know these are these are things that are tied integrally with genre and so shifting them completely takes it takes it out um and i want to throw it to jeffrey because i know jeffrey (laughs) is super into today's topic and so i can't wait to hear okay so you two are being super intellectual Uh, what I took the topic was simply like genre, i.e. sci-fi, horror, and how do we get queer people into those? And I want to say that I am currently sure. yep. wearing um, a Star Trek jacket uh, from a convention that's pasted full of all kinds of uh, patches and a rainbow flag on it. And it was recently willed to me by a gay man Trekkie who died of AIDS. So this is my homage to him. And all of us who, myself included, grew up nerds, um, absolutely. My first genre was sci-fi. I was a Trekkie. And for me, it was extremely difficult because I love the escapism of fantasy and sci-fi and yet that there were no queer people in it. (laughs) And really, to this day, there's not very much. And it's, you know, it's very depressing because you're kind of like, look at the future. You're supposed to be escaping into fun and you look at the future and there's no gay people. And yeah, no what happens people. between between yeah. now and then right. <laughs> there aren't any gay people left. And then you look at the past in fantasy and there's no gay people there either. So you're really like, you know, it's a it's been a very big problem. And I think if I'm really honest, the way I become more of a cineast in my life is because you could find gay people in serious cinema <laughs> and in cutting edge things and independent cinema. Um, and then like maybe I was forced to be a cineast. But my journey has been back towards I really just like mostly want to mo- watch movies for fun. <laughs> and um I'm really excited by what's happening right now because for the first time ever I go out and I've been, this is right now, I've been looking at the billboards and the posters and what's being made. And I'm like, is this being made to for me all of a sudden? So if you go out and look, you're like, The Last of Us on HBO is the one getting the most publicity, right? That's a Walking Dead knockoff and Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett are playing a gay couple, right? Bang, that's for me. Then you've got um, Teen Wolf coming back in, in a movie. And like that, that terrible, terrible werewolf thing uh, back in 2011 started putting gay character after gay character after gay character. And you're like, what is happening? Why are all these cute werewolves everywhere? And it was terrible, but I loved it. And also you've got M. Night Shyamalan. I can never say his name, so I apologize. But he's coming out with what is it called? The uh, knock on a the knock cabin. at the cabin. Yeah, knock in the cabin coming out this week, and that's a gay couple being terrorized with kids. And um, you know, I really went through a phase in my life where I didn't consider these films important, 
And um, I remember being on the Outfest uh, screenwriter lab for many years, and there was a, a great need, uh, desire within the Hollywood community to start having queer genre films. And that was what they were considering as the important step so that we could just be integrated into the mainstream. And I took me a while. Um, and um, I, I didn't think it was important. And now it's it's what I love. And I just want to say a lot of it, you can keep coming back to me, but a lot of it comes from this bury the gays thing. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, for me, sort of, so a big thing was um, start watching Walking the Dead. was first horror, Walking but Dead, first horror thing I was really into. And then all of a sudden they start killing the gay characters. So like, what are you doing? And then there was the hundred with the very famous thing between Lexa and uh, and that spurned um, Calexicon, which is a lesbian genre conference. And that's where the term bury the gays, bury your gays came from was stop burying your gays came from that Calexicon uh, lesbian genre conference um, <clears throat> coming from Xena, Princess Warrior and all of that. And so we have a film that I definitely think people should check out uh, called Queering the Script. Sam was call was saying Queering the Lens. Queering the Script, which sounds pretty general, right? Like you can queer any kind of script. Um, but this is really about, although the title is general, it's really about introducing lesbians into youth TV. And I think most, uh, and, and all the, you know, especially stop bearing the gaze that comes out of, but it's really the the point that comes to now, where we see, especially in any kind of youth genre thing, whether it's a vampire story or a witch story or any of those kind of stories, it is just replete with queer characters now, right? And it's almost a given. If you were to put one of those shows together now these days for youth and it's a vampire or a witch or a werewolf or anything like that, there are always centrally uh, gay characters. And I know that most of this stuff with genre comes out of a terrible place, like, you know, be it Dressed to Kill or Psycho where the queers are the villains. But we have come a long way in this area. I still think our great classics haven't made been made or still can be made. But um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting direction we're going. Well, yeah, I just wanted to jump in real quick and talk about, you know, and maybe at some point we'll do one episode just on queer horror, because I feel like there's a connection and historically between, you know, the hidden and the, the unknown and the uncanny and the frightening always correlated with queerness. And so it's always been a part of horror. Um, be it this old dark house from the Joel James whale films, you know, that's like, there's always been sort of like queerness inherent in the horror. And so it doesn't sort of surprise me to see it's, it's prevalence in, in fantasy and, and horror today, because it's, a, it's sort of, it's like a natural kind of connection between being the odd one out. It's always sort of, I think about the X-Men comics and how like being a mutant was sort of a, <laughs> an analogy for being queer. Um, and so it's always been kind of part of it. And so um, anyway, go ahead, Jared. Uh, let's, uh, what do you got? Um, so I think as a filmmaker, I, I strive for simplicity. And I always think like genre is just a, a, a promise to the audience. Like if you go into a horror movie or a Western or uh, a science fiction film or a comedy or a tragedy, like 
knowing the the genre is um you know gives you a sense of what to expect and it's a obviously yeah with every promise to make you get a chance to either deliver on that promise or deliver uh, a surprise um you know the more sophisticated part of me who went to film school and had to take you know film history and film theory classes you know looks back at you know genre is one of two things it's either the contents of a film you know if they're singing it's a musical if there's cowboy hats it's a western or if it's like the structure and the story of a film that that has a, a genre so in that example like alien is by by you know by content is a science fiction movie but the story the pace the way the story is told the events of it it's a haunted house movie and so these kind of collisions of genre i think are are always where some of the coolest films lie where on the surface in the you know the props and the production design and the promise to the audience it's one thing but then in the experience you have watching it it's something slightly different and i think you know both both jeffrey and sam's approach here i i really like because there's you know queer people in space is queering the genre on that kind of content level putting queer people into stories where they didn't traditionally belong is is awesome but i think also like thinking about different ways to tell a story like sam is saying is is just as important and you know a film that comes to mind that i think does both of these um did everyone see undertow the peruvian film from like 2009 no we handled that <laughs> yeah beautiful film really moving it is a ghost story um but i think it it really cleverly inverts you know most ghost stories the the plot is like the ghost has some unfinished business um but in this film it's the living person who has the unfinished business that needs to be resolved for the resolution of the ghost story and so i think it both like puts a queer love story at the center of a ghost story which is kind of querying the content of the film but it also completely surprises you in how it needs to be resolved because normally in in a ghost story it's like the ghost's unfinished business that needs to be resolved and like the ghost doesn't really have any unfinished business it's all about you know this man who um you know, had a male lover who drowned and no one knew about him and like needing to come out to his community as part of this like um, mourning and, and grief process and burial. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And I think it plays with genre so, so brilliantly. I had it on my syllabus and my students loved it. They were just like started, they were crying. Like it, it was like, yeah, that, that film went over very, very well with my, with my class. That's interesting. So that one came out of the Outfest Screenwriters Lab that I was just referring to. And it's interesting you say the unfinished business, finished business and ghost story. I had not thought of it that way. And it is really interesting because the uh, the guy who has the un, the finished business, he was an out gay man in his life. And so I guess when he dies, the way you're looking at it, he has done what he had to do, come to turn. And it's the guy who was still in the closet who still has the journey to coming out. So that, I hadn't thought of it yeah, that way, but that is really interesting. <laughs> and he's being haunted, but like the haunting is not a terrorizing thing. It's sweet. It's his lover gets to linger with him in this way. And so there's 
like this doubly bittersweet, like in most ghost stories, the ghost is a monster, the ghost is a torment. And in this one, it's almost like you're sad when the ghost gets to to move on um, because like the presence really is a sweet one. Um, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant film. I say two quick things. Um, uh, so Jeffrey made me think of a genre film with queers in space that I know we all know. It's called Codependent Lesbian Space Alien Seek Same. Yeah, I love this movie so much, and I've loved it <laughs> on my list. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a Madeline Olnick film, and it's just so funny. Um, and you know. It is the title. It's a codependent lesbian space alien seeking same. Anyway, it's great. And then the other one that I thought of while Jared was talking is Saturday Church. I don't know if you all saw that, but Saturday Church came out in 2017. And it's this young queer kid figuring himself out. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because I remember being like, cool, this is a narrative. Watching, watching, watching. They're singing all of a sudden they're singing um, and like dreamlike sequences and stuff. So I thought that was a fun uh, clearing of a genre as well. It's not a musical, definitely, but it adds something new. Can I name three changes, three, three parts that uh, change things for me? Um, I want to say when we're talking about, James, you're talking about how there was always subtext and there were, in horror especially. But for example, if you did grow up a Trekkie like me, <laughs> in Next Generation was the first time that they tried to grapple with queerness, homosexuality, and they still had to do it as an abstract. It wasn't very, it was very clear, but it was a planet where people did not have gender, okay? And if, or, or they were not allowed to express gender. Okay, and there's a love story where somebody who in this genderless society decides she is female. And so she's going to have an affair with the the first officer of the of the enterprise. And she's put up on trial for execution. And the absolute verboten thing in this society is to express heterosexuality in gender form at all so this is clearly a metaphor for queerness and trans issues going on but in the 80s they had to do it in reverse um for me the two biggest changes which happened in the early 2000s and and onward are come in the form of well, let's just go with the easier one first. The Wachowskis, which is probably later than that. The Wachowskis are certainly the ones who make the changes. Obviously, they now look back at the Matrix and they say it was a metaphor for transness, which I still think is stretching it, except obviously they're the Wachowskis, so they can say whatever they want. <laughs> and um, But their real literal breakthrough for me, which changes everything, was Sense8. So Jamie Clayton as a trans character plays the a lead. There are eight people connected through metaphysics and they all sort of form one person. So anytime that they're experiencing anything, their emotions, all of them experience it. And in it, there are several gay characters. So all of them experience gay sex by having 
sex, you know, if if one guy is having sex with his boyfriend, everybody experiences that. <laughs> so the straight main character cop gets fucked just when he get when the other guy gets fucked, right? <laughs> and um it's just uh, so it has many orgies of multiple genders including the main character, Jamie Clayton, playing a trans woman who has a lesbian lover, black lesbian lover who comes. And um, so they were no longer subtextual about that. <laughs> and they uh, would have orgies on screen. It was fantastic since they easily findable on Netflix. And then the other one for me um, was Torchwood. Does anybody know Torchwood? So Torchwood is the spinoff, is a spinoff of Doctor Who. So Doctor Who is very much of a queer metaphor because he, you know, in any, in, in the, in the odd man out, I mean, he's a space alien traveling throughout time and history and doesn't have a place that he really fits in, but they find, and he's sort of asexual, but always presented in a um, heterosexual context. Um, and then they had a spinoff called Torchwood which was a gay character from the show who then they developed a series for himself. And what I think it starts off kind of pansexual. He is pansexual in it. And then he eventually has a boyfriend. And what is truly amazing about that is it no longer becomes incidental that he is pansexual, that that is just part of his personality the relationship with the boyfriend ends up driving the plot. Everything that is happening is because they are in love. It's changing him as a person, changing his motivations, changing his actions. And so it isn't just that he is gay. It's that his gay relationship turns into the thing that drives the action. And I think like anything that a script is a script when it, when a character relationship is what's driving the plot. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not aware of really anything else in sci-fi where it's not just they're queer by accident, <laughs> where it's actually the relationship between two people that drives the main plot. That's when I call it queer cinema. It's a TV show, but it, uh, it eventually gets so gay by episode I mean, sorry, season five, that it kind of hits the gay cliff, which is something I'm very interested in, which is when do you take a show that is appealing to the mainstream, make it gayer and gayer and gayer and gayer, at which point you start to lose the mainstream audience, right? They're willing to come along to a certain point, And then the straight guys go, okay, enough, enough, stop. <laughs> and, you know, glee that happens. It happens to many shows. Teen Wolf, <laughs> when all of a sudden they decide this is too gay, I got to turn it off. And that's a really interesting place. And Torchwood does go over the edge, as does Sense8, but that makes you know it's going to do that right away. Um, so those those were two changes for me that um, really brought us into real queer representation within genre. Oh God, I have so many, I have like three different uh, things I wanted to, to tackle with it. Uh, um... First of all, I'm glad you brought up the Wachowskis because I think they have probably created the pinnacle of all genre films with Bound, which was like completely shocked everybody, but is so based in like hardcore noir genre that 
like and it fucking works it's just such a fantastic movie and queer as fuck and like you know it's just it's just a fantastic genre film um by i think and i think that was their first feature right i think it was the they hadn't made anything before that so right. um uh and i think i think it all of, i think a lot of their work is sort of tinged with certain kind of cross genre ideas too right you say matrix is kind of a noir sci-fi as well like as, as, um but to go back to your Star Trek conversation too, and I, and I might be, you know, not remembering this correctly, but wasn't it? It was one of the the Star Trek spinoffs that did a lot around gender. Wasn't there a certain character who could, could change their gender? And I'm not there sure. Are, if it was... There are a lot of subtextual trans characters, and yeah. you no, know, I think you know there is uh, there's the character in Star Trek Deep Space Nine that is that's the one yeah in female body and it's it's really more like you have a parasite within that that lists and and then lives with uses human body hosts right so in the prior life this parasite lives within a woman's body now but the parasite la lived within a man's body previously so the relationship that she had with a woman in the past was because she was male in the past. So Star Trek has always felt much more comfortable in doing these abstract things on gender and then hinting at why that's queer, right? Without addressing it as now you are a lesbian. They don't say that. They say you were in a relationship with a man, right? <laughs> and they're not together now, right? Because that, that would be impossible in that world it's just that they have a queer past so there are a lot more yes there are a lot more metaphors within star trek for playing with gender but they take it up to a certain line of course now the point is i'm saying it's all changed right now if you right. go, if you're looking at star trek discovery they have a gay couple they have trans characters they have many characters with they had an episode recently where the ca the character was trans and so they were using the they were referring to pronouns, but they never made it a thing. It just, they just were, <laughs> you know. Um, so like everything else, they've come a very long way. But um, I think there were a lot of important steps along the way. I was going to say a really quick thing, if that's okay, also about Star Trek. So I never watched Star Trek when I was growing up because I thought the costumes and the makeup of different aliens were scary and I would run away run out of the room and be like no 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 because my dad loved that show then my friend wanted to make a queer sci-fi series that unfortunately never ended up getting off the ground but they were they went to the source which is our friend Carla who's the biggest Trekkie I've ever met in my entire life and somehow I got wrapped into this and they were like hey Carla can you teach me the tropes of Star Trek and that world so that I know what I'm creating something within and somehow I got looped in and so once a month we would go to Carla's house and she would curate like maybe four or five episodes it was a long hangout with dinner four or five episodes based on a particular theme and sometimes the theme was gender and sometimes the theme was sexuality and sometimes the theme was um consciousness and all these different things and then I was like I like this show so just saying if there's any listeners out there who are like 
Star Trek. I think it's worth trying the next generation. I can't speak to the other ones. Okay, that's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> I just want to add to you, um, we have to mention if you're talking about Torchwood that it's of course stars John Barrowman, who's probably one of the more famous out actors um, in the industry. Um, and I wanted to bring up, and I don't remember if you, anyone remembers this um, Australian science fic, uh, TV series called Outland. I think, Jeffrey, you might have repped it for a, a short period of time. But it's about a bunch of Doctor Who nerd fans who are queer. Uh, there's a queer woman of color. There's a, a queer disabled person. It's sort of the sort of group of just nerds who get together to watch, to geek over star um, Doctor Who. Um, but I want to highly recommend, I'm not sure who has it, but I'll, we can take a look and, uh, and, and we can post it. Um, post show, right, but, are, um, Outland is. But but speaking of actual, like fandom, what are your actual favorite queer queer genre films? I don't think you've thrown in a the hat. Um, I'll throw you a few, but I I I also wanted to like comment on like the the queerness of fandom that you mentioned in yeah. in Outland. So, um, like going back to Doctor Who, if you watch the original British Queerest Folk from the nineties one of the main characters is obsessed with Doctor Who, has all the old, um, you know, all the old episodes on VHS. And Russell Davies actually then goes on to be the creator of the reboot of Doctor Who. And so I think that there's like something wrapped in like that queer fandom experience that gets wrapped into a lot of queer media. And like, it's probably not a surprise that a lot of you know, closeted queer kids love escapist stories, even if they don't quite see themselves in them. Um, what are some of my favorite queer genre stories? Um, like we haven't talked about queer Westerns yet. I feel like this is, um, this is always a, a fiery topic. Like I loved Power of the Dog. I think that it does a great job kind of bringing to the surface a lot of the kind of latent queer issues that are that are rumbling around in a lot of Westerns. Um, you know, Brokeback Mountain, obviously, we talked about last time, we all love. And when you talk about is is a genre, the props, well, I think that there's a lot that gay men have loved about rugged individuals out uh, on horses, out in the, the wild. And there's also something in the, the tradition and kind of the themes of the Western that similarly are not necessarily escapist, but like Westerns like to tell stories about solitary people who are a bit at odds with, you know, the prevailing uh, civilization and have to reconcile themselves to, you know, most Westerns are kind of the loner having to come around to the defense of the town that they don't really love the town in the first place, but they have to, to come around and stick up for it. And so I think that there's, there's also something inherently queer appealing in, in the Western as a genre. So I just want to jump in and say that if I have a hero and if I wanted to say that, like, you should just go figure out what queer sci-fi is, Russell T. Davies, for me, is the most important person <laughs> in this in this field. So he starts off with Queer as Folk, right? That's groundbreaking. He then, I mean, he's done many, many other things, but then he then does the reboot for Doctor Who, um, which is, you know, incredible within a context, that context. Um does Torchwood. Uh, he then goes on to do A Very English Scandal, which is a very traditional British 
but game thing. And then the one that I love that I think everyone has to go find it. You should be able to find it still on HBO is Years and Years. Years and Years is um, it's set in the very near future. It's 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 like a Trump character that's destroyed. It's an unbelievable new apo- near apocalypse film. And oh, what's Russell? The other Russell, British actor, um, Russell Tovey. Russell Tovey is the star. Is one of the stars of that, and he has a very shocking line <laughs> storyline. So I really recommend uh, Years and Years. And then he's recently come full circle and done a. Britain's answer to the big AIDS uh, epidemic period show, It's a Sin. And so he's really done every kind of gay genre and sci-fi genre and apocalypse genre. And I don't know, he's kind of my hero, guys, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> and um, he's only a few years older than me. So if he's out there, like any single, that's my future husband. <laughs> <laughs> please <laughs> well it, you know we keep coming back to television and i feel like you know television in many ways is is sort of at the has been at the forefront of you know challenging well, genres. I just say, as long as we're talking about things that change the genre and went very uh you know brought it squarely into queer cinema i think stranger by the lake is an important thing stranger yeah. by the lake which For is sure. a murder serial killer movie psychological uh, thriller yes set in the context of gay men cruising some lake outside of paris right. and so there is a serial a gay serial killer running around killing gay men and they are all fucking while it happens <laughs> and um interestingly like i didn't find the plot all that compelling in that film but you know, it's certainly within the context of French art house cinema, it is a genre film. And so I think that like the reason why I wanted to start out with Rotting in the Sun, where there is a loose murder mystery happening within the context of lots of gay sex happening. I think Stranger in the Lake is Stranger by the Lake. Yeah. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Stranger by the Lake. Yeah, Stranger by the Lake Strand has that. That's a that's a movie to check out. For Isn't sure. Knife that's and a fantastic Heart also film. A, a French Knife film and Heart is also killer. Yep. set um, during the fake making of a porn film. I think is yeah. what's going on right there. She's she's a porn director. Yeah, that's a fantastic film too. I mean, that actually um, is, that's actually an easy uh, segue into something. So yeah, I've been producing a um, well, I'm executive producer, but very hands on on a film called Treatment by Matt Pfeiffer who did a film called Cicada, which is a more traditional gay coming out narrative. Um, And it is a queer horror. And what I discovered, and this is on the more serious topic I'd love to get into, is that so when you look at the history of horror and queerness, it's very regressive, right? Politically regressive. Gay serial killer, gay, you know, gay evil. (laughs) And um, psycho, dressed to kill, cruising, these things. Silence of the Lambs, things that made me furious growing up because we were, you know, it's sort of straight out of uh, cellular closet stuff or disclosure, right? The evil, the evil trans character, the evil gay character. Um, 
and right now we see mostly like satires you know in general you'll see like a they them or something along the scream where it's you can satirize and include gayness in there but making a progressive genre film with queer people it's very hard (laughs) and i would i did not know that until i tried when you try to take these tropes and subvert them and put queer characters in them exclusive you know openly queer they still come across as negative stereotypes because we are so (laughs) like um deep in it so actually like the satire is the easiest way because you can just make you can just mock it but to actually take the character, make them work within a horror movie, but also be progressive, that is a very difficult storytelling thing to do. And um, yeah, I, I don't know that we are have been successful to date. Well, <laughs> let, let, me, let, let me challenge you on that because like, is that a filmmaker's job? Like when I when I teach filmmaking, like one of the things that I tell my students is like, don't feel like you have to solve the world because I think everyone now is much more media literate than we've ever been. And we understand, you know, patterns of how power replicates itself through culture and cinema. And we understand negative tropes and we understand who's been underrepresented. And one thing that you see a lot of young filmmakers do is try to like turn all the tables with their one film. And like, you can, you can, you can understand like, what regressive is in a culture by seeing what repeats itself over and over again and what gets producers money to fund and what audiences go to see but like does an individual filmmaker have to solve that in their film or can they just make a film where a character is an awful villain without worrying about what that says about you know all the various aspects of identity of of that character um so I think it's a privilege that we can not worry about the burden of history at this moment. <laughs> um, I also think we're in a privileged position where we feel good in our identities and we've seen these things and we're extremely media literate and this kind of thing. I'm not so sure. If you look at the mental health of queer youth, it's not better than it ever was. It's the same. <laughs> so I'm not sure that they aren't still getting the same images and they're certainly getting the same images when people call them fag in the schoolyard, you know? So um, I, we've certainly come a long way, but I know if you cross certain lines, you will be canceled, right? So there is absolutely a burden and the community will hold you to it. So it's very fluctuating. So, right. So Sam, I want to hear what you think. Like, do you feel so good about trans cinema these days that you're not scared of the <laughs> trans villain? Um, have we moved past it? What's your gut on that kind of thing? Uh, no, I don't think we'll ever move past the trans villain um, because I think no matter how many films there are, there's always someone who hasn't seen them. Yeah, and like you were saying, like we're pretty immersed in this stuff, and have been looking at it for a long time and have a particular viewpoint, but. You know, I only started paying attention in, I don't know, 2003 at the earliest. There was a lot of stuff before that that I didn't know that only I've gone back and watched as I've realized, oh, there's a lot of holes in my knowledge. And so if you find someone who's just starting to look at stuff now, they still 
need to have good representations. <laughs> and I, mm. I recognize that uh, we want, want to be able to subvert subverting things like subvert upon subvert upon subvert and like you know make really cool interesting things but I think that doesn't mean that we don't need to have these other types of representations that are really positive and yeah I mean it's interesting you know. when we when when we came on this we mentioned that there have been people who've listened to this in Uganda I would like their I would like their take on this you know um but it is interesting because one of the things I love about living in LA and I love about referring to Outfest in this uh, thing is in, in LA, we are very post gay, right? <laughs> in LA, we're very like, Oh, we are not burdened by the past of this anymore. And I do love that. Right. We, uh, when you go to Outfest, you can get all kinds of representation because you're not burdened by whether it's positive or not. But it'd be interesting oh. if we had Allegra on here, who's not here today. Frameline has generally been an incredibly politically difficult situation. And they are traditionally been very burdened. And don't show bad queer representation in San Francisco because you are going to get in trouble, right? I feel like we should sort of shift it a little bit. Not, I mean, yeah, I, I agree to some degree it is a burden, but I think it's also a responsibility to your community and, and you either sort of accept it and make it part of what you aim to do or you think of it as a burden and a pain in the ass and something you got to fucking deal with. Like, you know, I, 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 I would like a little sort of linguistic shift to it being more um, of a responsibility issue and not yeah. like, we approached it um, as but a I'm also responsibility to think that this... and found it hard. <laughs> like, right. didn't mean, yeah. as it, like yeah. we thought, we, thought we, we, we could do it, like show a queer film that was, deep delving into queer psyche problems the problems right. in the yeah. queer psyche and i found it very hard to actually express in a way that wasn't troubling and maybe well, that's just yeah i was just gonna say one of the things that i've always found um to be i find it very important to think about my audience when i'm programming and when I think about programming for the larger trans audience, which again, you can't really squish them all together because there's a lot of different experiences, but in general, people who are in those audiences have been through a lot of crap. And so I don't really want to show them something that makes them feel worse. Yeah. Like if when at all possible, I want to show something uplifting. I want to show something inspirational um of course there can be a challenge within the film and then it you know it 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 goes to a, a better place um but i think it's a responsibility of a programmer to try to not protect your audience because you can't but try to create a curated experience that's positive or if it's not make it really clear in the blurb like if you want to see this it's really good but also just be warned and i think that leads to a huge conversation about um trigger warnings and content warnings and mm -hmm. that's a huge thing for film festivals and i think some go way too far one way saying we're not going to flag every single thing so we're not going to flag anything all the way to flagging way too much and 
no one's going to want to see the movies. And so it's really about navigating the complex, the complex uh, emotional state of queer and trans audiences and how to do that effectively and safely and consciously. Yeah, here, here to all of that. What do you got to say to that, Jared? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I think, I think when you're making a film it, it there's a certain point to which like it just comes out of you like you can't you kill it by overthinking and overanalyzing it if you make a film that no one's got a home for or that needs to come with a lot of trigger warnings like people do that um and so that's why like maybe it's two conversations like when you're talking to filmmakers when you're talking to programmers like i i've seen more films like fail to get off the ground because they're trying to bite off more than they can chew and take on more of the world. And like, if you, if you subvert one trope, if you surprise your audience in one way, you've succeeded as a filmmaker. Um, you know, and I think that that's like the hardest part of being a programmer is you have a bunch of films that are just people's individual expression that hopefully came out of them as purely as possible. However, fucked up and traumatized and problematic they are. And you have an audience that's lived a life in this fucked up and traumatizing world. And you're trying to find a way to line them up so that everyone has a good time. Um, you know, that's that's hard. Sure as fuck is. We have some lines then when I do <laughs> films, right? No more trans people bash to death. No more, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there are some hard and fast lines that, um, you know, because if we're dealing with horror, it's I, I think it's fair to say to talk about trauma here. And it's like, we don't really want more trauma porn in our life. And I, I love when somebody said recently, like, if showing black people suffering on screen was going to help the world, there would be no more suffering of black. People, right because we've seen a lot of it it doesn't help the world so i don't know i think when you know it's a very complex question and why i was not really into horror until i learned that it could be campy and fun too right i was definitely grew up thinking it was scary and negative but <laughs> Sam going, yes. <laughs> but um, I've learned I've learned to change and learn. I liked sci-fi better because it was more like escapist for the projecting into the future what we could and horror deals with the trauma that we have right now. But you know, you're both right, Sam and Jared, when you're like, but you can combine all these genres and make them interesting, and that is querying the genre and why there is a sci-fi horror genre. <laughs> Right. Um, but it is it's it's really hard. And really hard. I was like, we're approaching our time, but I'm beginning to think this should be a two part episode because I really want to hear what Allegra and Kathleen also have to to say about this topic, because I think we can we can go another hour or definitely uh, on this subject. Well, I, I have a concluding, guys I have a concluding film I'd love everybody to watch before the concluding series. Sorry, I'm stuck in the TV thing and I've asked you guys to watch it before, but you don't have to. But if you can. So Interview with the Vampire, to me, is the ultimate journey of this. I read it in the 80s. It was a big part of my coming out, right? I didn't even realize it at the time, but the erotic vampire really touched a nerve for me. 
Then in the 90s, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt made it and took the gayness out, right? And it was devastating for me to see them take that out. And Tom Cruise was very public about it. No one cared. It was homophobic time. And then the recent series reimagines it again as they are a gay couple. There's no question. It's not subtextual. Um, they are a gay couple, but they are still murderous vampires, okay? <laughs> and in the <laughs> end, like, you're watching it, you're like, that is the worst Romeo and Juliet death you could imagine, right? Um, but it's all very gay positive <laughs> at the same time. Um, and they are very explicitly um, intellectually addressing this question that we're bringing up. Um, like they're not messing around. They're talking about it being queer theory. They're like, and how does this fit into queer theory <laughs> in it? Um, which is just astounding. And I'm like, thank you, life, for bringing me to this place. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. That that thing I watched in the 80s, they can now address on screen and call it queer theory. That's wild. Uh, well, Sam, Jared, do you guys want to do some final thoughts too? And let's let's just plan on keeping this going next the our, our next episode because I I kind of I like I really think we could do another hour of this. Yeah, and I think we can really probably spend time going deep on like each of these. We probably, if everyone could watch it, could do a whole episode interview with the vampire because I watched it and like like. I read the book. I saw the movie in the '90s. I thought both were kind of entertaining trash, and like the the new series, I was like surprised by the the like emotional and intellectual depth they found in the the source material. Um, I don't want to say they elevated it, but they elevated it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just my my last thought on on you know Jeffrey and sci-fi. Like I think that at the end of the day, like science fiction is just an optimistic genre because it imagines we'll all still be here in a few hundred years. So like, I think that there's, and Star Trek, like more than anything is just like so utopian, so hopeful. Um, and I think that there's, you know, there's there's a theme of like resilience and hope and optimism that we, we keep coming back to episode after episode being like, oh, I don't want another movie full of like sad dead gays. <laughs> Um, so I'm excited to to go deeper on genre, and I think we're we're gonna end up mining uh, this one for quite a while. Oh, I have another thought that's not a concluding thought at all, <laughs> which is um, one of the things that I said at the beginning that I just wanted to go into a tiny bit more depth, just for like a moment. Um, uh, so the whole idea of reinventing documentary and reinventing the gaze um, for those film history nerds. Um, remember Nanak of the North <laughs> from 1922? Um, and it was establishing the idea of the voice of authority of the documentarian. And everything I say is true because I'm making this film. And it was fictional stuff and about a culture that wasn't his. And so... I just, I bring that up now because um, I think specifically, I'm just going to say it again, Chase Joint um, is directly talking about and questioning and subverting the idea that the person who makes the documentary is the voice of authority. Um, and I just love right. that so much. 
But other than that, yeah, I agree. Let's keep talking. I want to know what Kathleen and Allegra have to say. All righty. Everyone, well, thank you for your great contribution to this conversation. I think it's been really fantastic. And um, I'm looking forward to the next um, episode where we'll revisit genre. Uh, and so thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, and we will see you next time. Or no, we won't. <laughs> Whatever. You'll hear us in the future. <laughs>